I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. The Second Shift podcast is really focused on the intersection of women, work, and well-being. And something that is a through line between all of those things is self-confidence. Building your self-confidence, understanding where it comes from, what's holding you back, and creating the most powerful, strongest, and most positive version of yourself at work, at home, in all aspects of your life. That's why this conversation in this episode of the podcast with Lydia Finette, who is a world-famous charity auctioneer. She worked at Christie's for 20-plus years. She's written two best-selling books. The first one was called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, which is just the greatest title. And the second one is Claim Your Confidence. And this is why she is one of my most favorite guests that we've ever had on because everything she's saying is so important and so structural to how you create well-being for women at work. Thank you, Lydia, so much for doing this. I kind of like fangirled on her a little bit. I was so excited to have her on. She was really, and I, I say this in the podcast, when I thought about launching the podcast for the second shift, she was really a dream guest because I knew who she was, we had met, and I thought she's like the perfect person to talk to. And so almost a year into this podcast, and she's finally a guest. So yay. I'm super excited to talk with you. We met, I mean, I know we live in the same neighborhood and like, it turns out there's lots of mutual overlap of friends and preschools and things like that. I think my kids are a little bit older than yours. And I've had like a girl crush on you for a very long time. So I'm just going to admit it. And we met at a dinner. And I remember this was before I even had a podcast, like the second shift was rolling, but we didn't, we didn't do this. And it was something that I had always thought about doing. And it seemed like a lot of work and weird. And, you know, all the things that you talk about in your books about, claiming your confidence and and just doing things in action. And I remember that dinner was at Luminary and thinking to myself, oh my God, she's writing this really cool book. And then when I started the podcast being like, that's my goal guest. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and here well, we are. I'm excited to be here. I'm, I can't wait to hear your next goal guest. <laughs> I mean, this is a good one because you've written two books. Your latest one is Claim Your Confidence. And the first one was The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. Right. And literally every single thing that we do at The Second Shift and everything that we talk about in this podcast is about like mindset, well-being, women, work, how to like own it and be like the best possible version of yourself to show up at work, but also within your own life. And this is like a roadmap on how to do that. And you've done it so spectacularly in your own life and then use that as a jumping off point. So I want to thank you. I'm super excited to have you here. And I hope that you'll tell everyone just quickly, give a quick overview of your story so they understand why I'm like fangirling. 
Well, first of all, thank you for this incredible introduction. I feel like I will go around for the rest of the day floating on cloud nine. So you're very welcome. You did. It's well deserved. (laughs) I guess the story would really start in my life when I started working at Christie's Auction House in college. I was an intern in college, and that was really where I saw auctioneers for the first time. Which, if I were to think of the one through thread of my entire adult life, it's been that I've been an auctioneer. And I was with Christie's for 24 years. During that time, about 10, 11 years in, I became a lead charity auctioneer for Christie's. And there were so many lessons learned along the way. Many of them came because I was really one of the only women on stage, especially in this capacity. And over a two-decade career doing it, I watched these things start to shift. And I watched people realize that I had as much of a gift as any of the men who were on stage and see it as an additive that I was a woman for the first time, sort of in the last half of the second decade of doing this. And I realized that there was a real need for women to have something that was like a roadmap for what I'd lived in my life that could help them shortcut the first 15 years that took me to get to those last five years. And it really came because I kept hearing women when I would get off stage, they would come up to me and say things like, you know, I could never do what you do on stage. Like I could never ask for things. I'm terrible at asking for things. And I look around and I still see this in a lot of my friends, but I wasn't that kind of person growing up. I had learned these skills on stage and anything you can learn is teachable. That's the truth. Anything that you learn how to do over your life, you can teach someone else how to do. Whether or not they choose to dig in and do it really well, that's up to them, but you can teach those things. And though that's how I ended up writing The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, to answer that question about selling. And then similarly, after I finished writing The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, the pandemic hit. And I already had an idea for writing a second book about confidence because when I was on my book tour, there were so many women who were desperate to tell me how they had no confidence and they wanted to know how they could be confident and they could stand on stage. And so my first book is really, you know, rah, rah, 2019. I'm like rocking it at work, firing at all cylinders. I've had my three kids. You know, my little one was barely a year at this point. I'm writing a book. I mean, everything was going so well. And then just like everyone else, I got absolutely annihilated during the global pandemic. I mean, you know, I took a 40% pay cut. My husband lost his job. You know, we were really like the city that we loved and lived in our whole lives. We created this ecosystem. that It was almost like confetti in a fan. I mean, people went into a million different directions and I too felt that my confidence was shaken, but I was able to come back to it very quickly. And again, to me, that became something that I started to hear from people, DMs. They would call me in those downtimes during COVID over LinkedIn. Is there any way you would get on a 15-minute call with me? I just, I'm dying. Like I have all these kids at home. I'm trying to manage a team. How are you doing it? And again, when you see a white space as a writer, you start writing. So I wrote the second book and then Rockefeller Center reached out and asked if I would do a companion podcast. So now I have a podcast and then I launched my own charity auctioneering agency. I guess it was about three months ago now because I realized that you know it's time to create my own thing. And so it's been, it's been an amazing journey. And I hope, as you said, that this is a roadmap for other people to realize that you can manifest anything. You can work hard and realize the dreams you have, even if they don't look like you think they did when you started out. One of the things that I, I remember from when we've initially met was the conversation we had, which was about 
how you have a coaching business as well. Mm-hmm. And you work a lot with CEOs, C-suite women. And at the second shift, we have, you know, thousands and thousands of women in our network who are all very professionally accomplished women. And then through the podcast, we have a, a bigger and more sort of varied audience. And it doesn't really matter. It comes down to you. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO or if mm-hmm. you are, you know, at the bottom of the rung. Mm-hmm. Women have such a hard time with confidence. And I cannot believe some of the conversations I have where I'll be talking to someone and I'm like, okay, you worked there for 20 years and you're the CMO and now you think you're not hireable because you've been, you're leaving that job or there's something that you want to do. And you then all of a sudden are self-doubting that you don't feel like you can do it. And it's a through line that I find through women professionally, that it doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter what point in their career. And it's heartbreaking to me. And I'm yeah. sure that, that it, it feels the same way to you. Yeah. I often say to friends of mine, like, if you could see what I see in you, like you could see the potential I see and the unbelievable accomplishments that have piled up behind you that you, you've forgotten about over time you would realize you're absolutely unstoppable. Like there's literally nothing that could stop you except for yourself because everybody else thinks you're a success. The only person who's not rooting for you is you. And that is such an easy thing to say, but I think for so many people, it takes a lot of self-discovery to realize that and be willing to challenge it and move through it and get to the other side. Because, you know, I talk a lot in Claim Your Confidence about the fact that people think that confident people are confident because they're successful. And I would always challenge that belief. You know, I started off my second book talking about going on book tour. You know, my New York book tour was everything I thought it was going to be. It was like everything I'd waited for my whole life, this sort of acknowledgement of this skill that I had really up-leveled and become one of the best in the world at doing. You know, I had my books, I had my career, I had three children. It was like, it was all working, right? And I launched it in New York. I do all these amazing events. Everyone comes because I know them. And I go to San Francisco and I'm ready for round two. And I walk into my first book signing and there is one person there, literally one person. And I say in the book, you know, you're reading these, these first couple of pages about my, you know, the fabulous life of Lydia in her New York book launch. And even if you're like, she's great. I like her. There's probably a part of you too. is like, shut up already. And so it's kind of funny to watch like the person who the story's about fall into a place where all of a sudden all that confidence is supposed to be gone, right? Because that's the worst thing you can imagine. You've written a book and nobody cares. Like that's You write a book because you think people care about your story and then you realize actually they don't. And so I think it becomes this really interesting part of your career where if you put yourself out there, you realize that that's always going to be part of the game. Like there is always going to be the opportunity for failure. And if you are willing to face that and you're willing and you realize that it, it is something that might happen, you become unstoppable because, you know, I wrote a second book and I've done it all again. So it didn't kill me. That's for sure. Didn't <laughs> it didn't great, kill you. Didn't Maybe kill you're me. just a masochist. The, yeah. the process of writing the book, you have three kids, you, you're, you know, have a major career and now you've written your second book. And I have <laughs> friends who are so accomplished and are off writing books and doing these things. And the fear of failure, the fear that none of it matters, that no one's going to show up, that they're going to have to sell themselves. They're going to have to go to that book launch with two people who show up is almost like they don't want to write the book. It's paralyzing because that's the, the scariest part. How did you overcome? And how did you, that day when one person showed up, 
dig down to say like, it doesn't matter. And this isn't going to affect my ego and kill me. Yeah. I mean, it does matter. It's such a smack in the face when things like that happen. I mean, I was absolutely mortified. And to tell you the truth, after that whole thing happened, and I go into great detail in the story about how I tried to recruit people in the bookstore and they just basically said that they they didn't want to come. And then a woman pulled a shopping cart into the back and started heckling me loudly when I finally (laughs) had five people sitting there. I mean, it was really a low of the low. And that night I went to dinner with these sort of like incredible women from San Francisco, a friend of mine had put the dinner together. We'd had a cocktail party before it and I sold out all of my books. It was like what New York had been in San Francisco. And I remember sitting at this table and I posted this picture of myself on the Golden Gate Bridge with my book. Like, here I come, San Francisco, on my way to the book event. (laughs) And I remember sitting at that dinner and everybody was like, oh my gosh, I've been watching Instagram. I mean, Instagram, what a highlight reel, right? I've been watching Instagram and everything is going so well, like the Today Show and the launch at Chrissy's. And it's just like all of this, you know, the stuff I was saying at the beginning, it's like all that beautiful polish with the shine that you want it to be so badly. And I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, like, what am I peddling here? Like, honestly, if I can't be honest about this, what am I really teaching? How am I teaching people to be powerful if I can't even admit something really bad happened? And I remember telling that story And there were tears coming down their faces. They were laughing so hard. And I realized in that moment, that's the unifying factor. That's the bond. That's how you really get to know people when you're not afraid to show failure and to fail. And I guess what I've learned over the time, and, you know, even as I'm launching this new agency, I say to people all the time, they're like, what if it fails? I'm like, what does failure mean? I'm the only person who knows what success looks like because it's my vision. It's my dream. And if it doesn't work out the way I thought it was going to, which by the way, it won't, that's fine because I'm going to learn something and anything that doesn't serve me, I will let go. So if I have these three ideas for the agency and one of them doesn't work, then I'll follow those two and find another third. You just have to look at it as an evolution as opposed to failures. These aren't failures. These are things that don't work. Let them go. Sometimes you will fall flat on your face and there's no recovery, but most of the time it's just you're evolving through a process. You're starting a business Part of it didn't work the way you thought it would work. Let it go. Don't hold on to it and don't let it stop you. So what you're basically saying is self-doubt and the paralyzing perfectionism of things can stop you from moving forward and doing things and achieving goals that it doesn't matter if the goal isn't achieved. Yeah. It just doesn't matter. The action is more important then even the goal, and just because the action overcomes that piece inside you that's holding you back. Yeah, exactly. I'll give you an example because I think sometimes, and you've seen this probably in the way that I write my books, I definitely believe that people like to understand through storytelling. And I started when I, I told you about COVID. So I took a 40% pay cut and my husband lost his job. So as you can imagine, and I also, the other sort of side hustle I had at that time was that I charged to take charity auctions. And there were no charity were there none? People, there were none. Yeah. Yeah. People, people were not gathering in rooms of a thousand people willingly um, in March of COVID for well over a year after that. And that was almost half of my revenue that was coming in. And instead of becoming paralyzed with fear, which would have been an easy thing in a place where we were also paralyzed with fear, I always believe that action leads to action, right? If you start moving, things will move with you. You will create the action that leads to more action. And so I went for a run after I found out about the pay cut. And I was like, what do I need to do to replace the income? 
And I realized another thing that I'd seen in addition to the people asking about confidence were people reaching out about some of the skills that I have that are very marketable. I know how to sell. It's one thing I know how to do. I know how to negotiate. Networking is a specialty of mine and public speaking is a complete obsession of mine. And so I decided to start a masterclass and I priced it out basically the same amount that I would price an auction. If I could get this many people to come onto the Zoom at the same time, it would be in lieu of an auction. And I launched it on Instagram and the first one sold out and the second one sold out and the third one and the fourth one. And all of a sudden I had a masterclass series. And so I was able to run this masterclass twice in its full iteration, making back a ton of the money I would have made not being on stage. But then an interesting thing happened when I went to drop the third class, I kind of fished from the same pond too many times. The time that I was doing it hadn't changed. Like nothing had changed. I was just doing the same class that I'd done now twice. And it turned out there wasn't really a market as much. So I think I had 12 people as opposed to 25. And I started to see that in all the classes. And I was like, okay. So you could look at that and think, well, it failed. But an interesting thing was that people started emailing me because you know time was passing. People were starting to get a little busier. And they would say, I can't make it Thursday at four. Is there any way you could do like, a, could you send me the video? I'm like, yeah, I could. I could send you the video and I could do it for half price. Even better, I could send you the video and do a half hour consulting session with you. And if you pay the full price, you get me for half an hour. Like that's part of the package. And that was basically how my coaching business started. And it was like, all of a sudden I had this new influx of clients and again, an evolution, right? So the masterclass went away. I stopped doing that completely. I started taking on the coaching clients. And then at some point the coaching took over and it was too overwhelming. I had too many clients there. So I started scaling back. And so my point is that every part of this is an evolution to me. It's exciting. And as soon as I find something that doesn't feel like it's working or if it isn't serving me in the way that I want it to, or frankly, if I can't monetize it enough to make up the amount that I want to be making from this, because you also have to goal set, right? So how much do I want to make from this? If I'm not making those numbers anymore, then I evolve and I move on to the next thing. So you really, I don't feel like you have much of a fear of failure. You, it feels like you are very tenacious as a person and you like a challenge. Do you think that that's like a natural, just like way that you were born? And, you know, I know the story from your book about when you first got your job and the tenacity it took to get that first job. And, you know, it was not like you were grandfathered in uh, to (laughs) to work in the auction business. So, and and that's, and it's a great story, but just, do you think that that's like a, a temperament you have that can be just honed in anyone? Obviously that's why you've written the books, but personally, is that something that you've spent a lot of time doing a lot of introspection on? And trying to figure out how to like optimize, or is it something where you feel like that's more of like your natural state? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I always was scared of the word no, always when I was younger in my sort of like earlier days. I remember even just asking anybody for anything that felt like it was going to make me feel uncomfortable or worse, they would feel uncomfortable and tell me no, made me want to cringe and die. But what I've realized is it's almost like an addiction once you realize that if you ask for things and they start to happen, that it's not that big a deal. And you can apply that to anything in your life. You know, even something recently last year when I was leaving Christie's, I remember having to ask somebody for access to something that I'd had as a result of not even working for the company, but in another facet of one of my side hustles. But I thought because I wasn't working at Christie's anymore, it would probably not be attractive to her and she wouldn't care anymore. 
And I remember, I mean, I didn't sleep. Like I would, it would wake me up at three o'clock every morning and I'd be like, oh, I need to send this email, but I don't want to. And I remember sending the email and the bounce back for her, of course, was less than two seconds later. It was like, you know, dear, and I don't want to like say the whole thing. I was like, dear, you know, here's a six page email as to why it would be great if I could still, use, you know, and it literally was like, of course, I'll change it right now. Like just send me your new email address. And it was so funny. And things like that for me are always such a good reminder that you just have to ask, you just have to do it. And if it doesn't work out the way you want it, it's better that you put yourself out there. We do tell ourselves a lot of stories, don't we? Oh, so many. We tell, it's so exhausting in our own heads. <laughs> we tell ourselves all these stories about, you know, I have to this and it's not going to happen. And, and it's all meaningless because it, unless you're doing it and trying it, it's just a story or it's how you think that people are going to perceive the situation. And it's oftentimes just not even true. Exactly. It's so true. And honestly, I say this in my book, you know, I talk about imposter syndrome and I have this, yeah. I use gavel. You have slam. slam. I want to like go into slam. I think that's <laughs> awesome. Well, I love a good acronym because it's so easy to remember and everything for me always leads back to, I was at an auction or once when I was on stage. So I think slam is a very easy acronym to remember. And I said, there are four things you need to remember from the word slam. So S stands for stop counting yourself out before you even have a chance to get in the room. How many times, Jenny, have you had a friend who you say something like, you would be so great at this. And then you listen to them tell you why they would not be so great at it. Even though, as I said earlier, you know, they have all the skills for it. You would be so great for that job. I could never do that job. Like, I don't even know how to do this or, and also nobody would even take, you know, it's just like, wait, what? So I just say to people, stop, stop using the words to count yourself out before you even have a chance to get in the room. Let somebody else count you out. It's like I always say about performance reviews, like give yourself five stars, mm -hmm. let them knock you down. They'll do it for them. People are always like, well, that doesn't take a lot of self-awareness. I was like, it is a strategy that worked for me for a very long time in my job. The L stands for listen, listen to what people are saying, to the actual words that they're using and don't create a narrative that doesn't exist. I talk a lot about maternity leave. You know, when you're going out on maternity leave, especially in my company, I'd been there for 13 years at that point. I remember hiding my pregnancy because I didn't want to be counted out. And I also remember telling my little brother that he's like, why would you hide your pregnancy? I'm like, because I didn't want people to think that I was leaving and not coming back, which is what I was assuming what they would think. And what was said to me at that time, because obviously this was over, this was 10 years ago. But when I got back, I remember a friend of mine, a guy said to me, that's good to have you back. And I remember thinking, oh, he's probably like, you know, I can't believe you've been gone on maternity late. You know, I said, I just got into this headspace where I just assumed that what he was saying was said in a nefarious way. He just said, it's great to have you back. So why not end that sentence with, it's great to have you back? Like what a hell of a multitasker you are. Three babies at home and you're here doing this job and killing it and taking auctions. And like, why would I go to the negative? And so I remember that day just thinking to myself, like, I'm not going to do that anymore. If somebody makes a comment, I'm going to assume that the end of that sentence is positive unless I'm told otherwise. The A is accept that there are no gold stars for being an adult. So yeah. nobody's going to give you a gold star <laughs> for showing up to work or doing that load of laundry. Like nobody cares. It's your life. Give yourself the gold star. You know, if you're doing a good job, you know, if you're not doing a good job, you don't need anyone else to tell you. And when you stop relying on other people to tell you about how you're doing and then listening to them, like they have all the answers. You're taking that ownership and that confidence away from yourself. You're like handing it to someone else. Do you think I'm good at this? Like, are you good at it? You know the answer. Also, no one's really thinking about you that much. 
right. <laughs> That's the other thing. Yeah. Um, and then the last one is M, you know, make your point and don't back down. If you don't believe that you are in the wrong, don't say you are. Because people like people who come at something with a point of view and stand their ground. But if you waver and you're weak, that's just going to feed your imposter syndrome and it's going to eat away at your self-confidence because again, you're going to believe that everybody else has the answers and you are just always on the back foot waiting for them to tell you. So S-L-A-M, slam. <laughs> Great advice. And to go back to one of the things, I think it was under L, um, mm. but it really goes to like mindset. And I'm a big believer in like you speak into existence what you want and your thoughts create your reality. So yes. if you hear something and you hear it the way you don't like, mm -hmm. or you think something and it's a feeling that doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. If you can, like you just did, if you can switch it so that it always has a positive connotation in your brain and in your body, then you're going to have a positive experience. It's just, it, how does it land? Yeah, exactly. We control so much more than we think we do. And the more you realize that you control and the more you own those components of your life, you own your power to live the life that you want to live. And that is the truth. That's so much about what I was trying to say in Claim Your Confidence. You see people give that away. It's your life. Make those decisions on your own. Take that power back and really own it and feel good about it. Don't worry what other people are thinking. As, as you said, Jenny, very few of them are actually thinking about you anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that you're starting your second shift. That you're going into, you know, you've had a 20 plus year career, Christie's, which is the job that you created, the, the career you wanted for such a long time and that, and that you achieved, you yeah. know, the heights of, and that you had the desire and the confidence to go off and start something new at this point when you objectively don't have to do that. So here you are and you write a lot about white space and talk about white space and how there's a lot of women who want to do something, have a mm -hmm. dream to do something, want to leave this career and go to work at a startup, want to, mm -hmm. you know, create a, a nail polish line, whatever it is, but they've talked themselves out of it. They're too afraid, or it just doesn't seem the right time. And, you know, I'm going to be giving up so much. And then, you know, you did it. So what was the impulse to do it? And were you afraid to do it? And how do you define white space? Well, I think, first of all, if there's anyone who's out there listening right now, wondering about whether or not they should take on a side hustle or you know, leave to start the nail polish line or whatever it is that they want to do, what I would say to you is you have to think about your own life. Everybody has a different life design. I'm a big believer in always feeling safe and secure in your finances. So first and foremost, if you have a job that pays the bills, and you want to start something that is not going to pay the bills, it's okay to stay in your job and do that job on the side. You know, even unintentionally, that's really what I did when I started my books. I didn't really realize this was going to arch off into a completely different career for me. But I had my job at Christie's. I started writing this book. I'd been kind of thinking about it for a long time. Then I told the New York Times that I was writing and I ended up selling it based on one chapter. Speaking it into existence, right? Yeah. You said you were doing it before you had even done it. It was an idea. Which exactly. I think is true. If you say you're going to do it, then all of a sudden you have to do it. Yeah. And if it's written in the New York Times, then everybody's asking you about it. And then you really have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so it wasn't dissimilar with the agency. You know, I left my full-time role at Christie's in, 
I guess it was really January of 2022, the partnerships department that I had been running was kind of coming to a close. And I was basically asked if I would stay on as an ambassador. And it was something I discussed with them earlier that summer, just because I think even my enthusiasm for my job had waned over the years. I mean, 12 years of doing anything, just it didn't feel great, but I didn't have a natural next step. And I think they couldn't figure it out and I couldn't figure it out. And I said to my mom, I felt like it had become almost like a dress that I loved so much. Like I will always love Christie's. It was so much a part of my life, but the dress just didn't fit anymore. And I couldn't leave because, you know, the benefits came through me. I made the bulk of the salary. There's so many things that make you stay. And yet this boat that had originally sort of started as a dinghy next to the, my boat, which was my job, had slowly been growing up to the point that it was actually bigger than the boat that I was on. And I kept looking over like, oh, would it be great to be on that boat instead of the one, you know, it just, it kind of didn't work. And then as you will have seen in the last chapter of the book, my family had a pretty horrendous accident. And that for me was just a complete life altering moment. You know, I think when you skirt death that closely and there were definitely moments when I was not sure that I was going to live, seeing your children in such horrible pain, seeing my husband in such horrible pain, and then having to recover from a fractured spine and multiple broken ribs while also trying to get my kids back up and running after such a horrible accident, things are really put into perspective. And so, you know, we talk about speaking things into existence when Christy sort of said, you know, partnerships is not really going to be something we're focusing on anymore. What do you think about this ambassadorship? It was literally the perfect thing. I remember saying to my husband, like, I don't think I've ever felt so relieved in my life. Like this is, this is the perfect way for this to end. And the ambassadorship for me was kind of a pause. It was basically just a moment for me to stop and really think about what came next for me. Kind of going back to what I said about taking ownership of my life, like not working for someone else anymore who was going to be dictating my terms, but rather figuring out what that looked like. And I had essentially a full year before my contract came back up for the ambassadorship. And I think I always knew that I wasn't going to re-sign it. I never really said that out loud to anyone, but... I knew that it wasn't going to be forever. I just hadn't figured out the next step. And then in February of 2023, I had one week where I had nine calls for auctions in one week because auctions are now all over the country. They used to be, for me, be in the tri-state area in California. Like that was pretty much it. I would go between maybe down to Florida once or twice a year. But since COVID, so many people have moved and they get to a new state and they, they see a new auctioneer and they're like, it doesn't have to be a cattle auctioneer. You guys could call Lydia. This could be really fun. She does it. It's different. But you may like it. And I'll go into a city and take one auction and walk out with six new clients overnight. And I can't do that. I can't go to those cities over and over again. And I don't want to just hand over names of people who I've never seen take auctions. I've trained 13 classes out of Christie's. I know who the good auctioneers are and I know how to make auctioneers good. I know how people just, I know how to spot raw talent and make auctioneers really good at what they do. And so those ideas were percolating. And Again, my contract for Christie's came back up and I was going on the CEO of Barstool Sports' podcast and I sat down with her and she was kind of all over the place at the beginning of the conversation. We were talking about auctioneering. We were talking about my career. And then she said to me, kind of towards the end, she said, you know, do you have an agent? And I said, well, I have a literary agent, you know, who, who helped, like was the person who sold my books. And she said, and I said, or I have a speaking agent. I'm a keynote speaker. And she said, no, but do you have an auctioneering agent? And I swear to God, Jenny, the words came out of my mouth as we're talking about like manifesting and saying things into the universe. And you can go back into the podcast. I think I, I was stunning myself as I was saying, I was like, 
but I'm starting an auctioneering agency. <laughs> like I really like was, I thought I talked to people about it, but I had not done a single thing. And I remember we turned it off and I said, oh my God, I've never said that to anyone except for my husband and my best friend, Mary. And these women at the Goldman Sachs conference where I'd spoken who were all like, do it, do it. And she said, do you want me to take it out? And I was like, no, absolutely not. And I basically ran two weeks later. And so I called my website designer. I was like, I need to get a landing page up that says it needs to be green because green is the color of money. Like Lydia Finette Agency, I'm going to be training charity auctioneers and representing best in class. And it started off that simply. And I launched it maybe a month later. I told Christy that I wasn't going to renew the ambassadorship. And then I launched the agency the next day. And that was kind of it. And it's been unbelievable. I mean, I can't even, I feel like my husband's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm answering emails because everybody wants an auctioneer. And so I'm in this amazing beginning stage of a startup where I have all this business and I have some great auctioneers and I'm about to launch the training program and everything to find my new auctioneers. And it's exciting. And as I said, like whatever doesn't work just falls by the wayside and we keep going. (laughs) Isn't it fun to just have like the new excitement over your career at this point in your life to be rejuvenated and to love what you're doing. And, you know, I've had lots of periods of time, you know, I switched careers. I was a journalist and I did this, I started the second shift and there's been periods where like, this was just a slog and then figuring out how to like go in and be like, how am I going to make this fun? Because this is what I do. And how is this going to be? What's the white space to your point? Where are the places where like, there's an opportunity, even if it wasn't something I thought of or wanted to do in the past, like, how do I want to make this a great experience for myself? Because this is your life. You live it once. You live it once. And you know, what you said earlier is so true as well. You have a business and people are coming to you with different ideas. There is this, especially at the beginning, this sort of scarcity mentality where you're like, oh, I need to do it all. And because I I started strategic partnerships for Christie's, I ran it for 12 years. I saw that business, like so many highs and lows over the years. And so many things fell by the wayside. It looked nothing like it did when we started at 12 years at the beginning of the, the partnerships division. And similarly to that, the one thing I have realized that is so crucial when you are doing something on your own is you have to have a very strong gut about the things that you want to do versus the things that you don't want to do. Because I'm a people pleaser. You know, I'm Southern and British by my parents and was raised with all that graciousness of any, you know, good Southern British British child. I said yes to so many things I didn't want to do when I worked at Christie's just because I thought it was going to help me up the corporate ladder. So many things. So many hours doing things that I did not want to do that were not in my skill set or volunteering my time to do things that I didn't really want to do just because I thought it would help me along the way. And what I've realized with my business now is when the request comes in, because when you launch an agency and you don't put any information out except for one sentence, everybody thinks they know what it is about. So I get inbound from people all across the map with, oh, are you doing this? Is this going to happen? And I look at it and I give it a two second gut reaction. If my first gut is absolutely not, I don't do it. And if I look at it and I'm like, oh, maybe, then I follow the white space. And so, you know, I'm planning a retreat in the Hamptons this January, just because this beautiful property out there reached out and asked if I would ever consider putting together a claim your confidence retreat. And again, kind of going back to what I said about the coaching and the masterclasses, all of that content is written. I enjoy that so much. It's such a fun part of what I do. And to have it just sort of like, would you like to do this? My first reaction was like, yeah, let's try it. Let's just see. If you need somebody to come and talk about jobs, 
and shifting career paths, I would love to come and talk about that. That's my most favorite activity. Well, I want to just say to everybody who's listening on this podcast, that is the way that you get asked to do things because if you never say it, then people don't ask you. So thank you. And I will definitely take you up on that offer. I'm happy to talk about, you know, the 10 years of telling people, you know, how to navigate the shifting career paths. And I love doing that. But I also think you mentioned before your Southern and your English background. And I read somewhere, I heard somewhere you're saying that you're a combination of like, you're nice and you're kind and you should be to everyone, but you don't let anyone push you around. No, you are assertive and you make sure that you are strong. And because, and it's like that combination that I think is like, is a force to be reckoned with. It's a force to be reckoned with, but also I don't think that to be strong, you have to be rude and aggressive and ugly and all those things. You can wear flowery, girly things and still be a badass. You can, you know, and I truly believe that was my favorite part in my own career shift on stage where I always went up in a black suit because all the auctioneers I'd ever seen were men. They were always in black tie at the charity auctions. And so as a woman, I felt like I needed to be in a black suit. So for years, the only thing I wore were black dresses and black suits. But then as I started to become more more comfortable, I started to add color. And then the color turned to big earrings that went with it. And all of a sudden the heels were there too, because let's be honest, I'm always in heels, even though I'm six feet tall, because I'm already taller than you, who cares? So (laughs) all of a sudden what used to be this just sort of like Lydia in her black outfit is like all of a sudden Lydia in her bright red dress with huge earrings. And that became as much a part of my stage personality as my confidence, because if I'm in that and I walk out on stage feeling beautiful and self-possessed and confident in what I am wearing and the shape and the way that my arms feel in a dress, like all of those things to me feel like armor, you know, and I get on that stage and it's like, this is me and I am here and I'm taking up this entire stage and don't say a word. You guys are about to be broke. <laughs> I love um, it. My favorite part of the auction. I'm like, you guys have no idea how much money is about to come out of your pockets right now. <laughs> And it's true because confidence and, you know, you talk about sales, you talk about negotiation, you talk about networking, all of these things that you talk about in your book, which I, you know, I don't think we'll have time to get into every single thing today, although I could continue this conversation for the rest of my life, um, is that there are so many gendered norms around the way we think about walking on that stage you know, I remember back when I was in TV, I would put on the suit and I was told by like, you know, news directors, well, you have to have this kind of earring and you have to wear like a suit and it should be these colors. And it was like nothing that had any authenticity or mm-hmm. really it was like trying to fit a very specific mold and you felt mm-hmm. like you had to. I think you lack confidence when you're not being authentic to who you are, what your gender is, what your personality is like, and then you're not as successful. Yeah, I agree. I had a woman stop me in Central Park. I was in a dress and I think I was in heels and I I think I was leaving a a sort of lunch or something. I can't imagine why else I would have been in heels in the middle of Central Park. Yes, I was at a... Walking your dog. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was... Yeah, exactly. I walked my dog and a cocktail dress and heels. I actually don't have a dog. So if my children hear this, don't worry, we're not getting a dog guys. I was at a luncheon and I left and I was walking through the park and this woman, she came over, she came running over and she goes, I follow you on Instagram. Thank you for looking like you do on Instagram. And I remember thinking, 
that's such a funny thing to hear somebody say, but I actually am always in dresses. And if I'm in the city, I'm usually in some form of heel. I think that for me being on stage and feeling like myself felt so great. And to that point about just feeling like you are exactly who you are and no one else, I will never forget being pregnant for the first time on stage. And I can't tell you how many people Jenny told me, they were like, you're never going to be able to take auctions pregnant. And I would smile and I would just think, watch me. (laughs) It made me want to do it even worse. And I was so sick during all of my pregnancies. Like I would lay in the back of the taxi and just like, I would, I would just want to weep because it was at night. You know, and I have a fail-proof cranberry and club soda that I drink before every auction because the juice gives me sugar, but it doesn't keep me up all night. And, you know, that little rush of sugar, I remember getting on the babies were just kicking because, you know, if you drink juice when you're <laughs> like kicking me while I'm the camp, I was like, but it was so funny because I just, I also felt very powerful up there because I was like, this is crazy. I'm raising money while building a child in my body. Like, this is just such a moment. And I think little things like that, realizing that there's so much power in femininity and how we can take ownership of that by dressing the way we want to dress and being the people that we want to be in our authentic way. And if you do it and people see it and they see you being comfortable with it, they become comfortable with it. You know, I've become a car auctioneer. I'm the first female car auctioneer in the car world. And one of the first auctions I took afterwards, I work with mainly men. There are a couple of really amazing women in the team too, but they're mainly guys. And I ran into them, one of them in an airport and we were talking, I'm going back for the first, I've done, this will be my fifth auction that I'm coming up to in Pebble Beach. So I started in Pebble Beach, which is the big sort of Super Bowl of car auctions. And I've had four since then. I'm going back in three weeks to take my next round at Pebble Beach. And he's like, I want to just tell you something. He's like, you know, when you got up on that stage the first time at Pebble Beach, he's like, it was like a real thing. Like people were looking at you, like what is going on? And I was up there for five straight hours. Like you never get to go off. And I even said, I was like, I don't think you understand biologically as a woman who's had three children. I'm not sure this is possible. We're going to see, maybe. So they were like, you never thought of that. You know, we'll, we'll try to find a bathroom. They're so sweet. It was just so, they've never even thought about it. Like, this is very difficult for me to stand on stage for. I can barely be anywhere for an hour without- Five hours? five hours. And I've done it now five times. I did one for six hours. I just don't drink anything, anything for hours. But anyway, so I remember he said to me, he was like, when you got up for that first auction in Pebble Beach, he's like, half the audience absolutely loved you. And I put the words in his mouth and I was like, and half of them absolutely hated me. And he said, how did you know? And I said, because I'm a woman. They were looking at me, thinking to themselves, why is she up here? Why is she there? She should not be up there. This is not a job for a woman. This is a job for a man. This is a car world. Everyone out here is a man. But the funny thing was, every time I went back up there, and you should see the colors, hot pink on the first time, white on the second time, marigold for third and fourth auctions, bright colors, bright earrings. I mean, by the time I took that last auction in Amelia, I mean... I can't even tell you. They were like, do you guys, do you want to take a victory lap? Because every single person in here loves it. And I said, it's the same with charity auctioneering. When I first got up there, people were like, why is she here? Like, where are the guys? Like, where are the people who know how to do this? And then when you see it and you do it differently, all of a sudden people are like, wait, that's not good or bad. It's just different and different can be fun. And she's kind of fun. And we actually like her. And now this has become the, literally without a doubt, one of my favorite parts of my job is sort of bombing into these all male 
rooms of guys who collect cars, which I know a minimal amount about that I'm learning more, but not being scared of being up there, even though at first they didn't want me there because now they do, because I've shown them it can be done differently. And that to me is a really exciting thing. And it's a challenge that I hope to keep taking over the course of my life. You know, first in the charity auctioneering, now in the car auctioneering, now owning my own auctioneering agency. It's like, ladies, look what we can do. We can all do it. So pregnant and wearing hot pink. We can do anything we want. We can do anything we want. (sighs) You just have to believe it. That is the truth. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Okay. This was the best. Thank you. (laughs) This is the best. I can't congratulate you more for all of the things that you're doing and the lessons that you're putting out into the world because you have a platform, you have the experience and you're using it to help other people. And that is commendable beyond. So same to you. Thank you for the honor of being on here and for inviting me to be part of this conversation. And thank you for putting everything you're putting out into the world, because I know there are so many women who are desperate for this message. So I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much, Lydia. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.